Well, again, good morning. Uh, we're going to be looking through Matthew 13 today, and as we've been going through Matthew 13, we've been talking about these parables, and there are seven of them speaking on the topic of the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you remember in the past, we've been talking about the kingdom of heaven. We've said that it consists of two spheres of people. There is this larger sphere, which includes everyone that outwardly professes to know Christ. They somehow acknowledge, or claim to at least acknowledge, God's rule over their lives. And right now, as we've said, it's anywhere from 2.4 to 2.6 billion people in this world claiming to be Christian, which comes out to be roughly about 29 or 30 percent of the population. And in this 29 percent of this sphere called the kingdom of God, this larger sphere, everyone in it claims to know God, claims to acknowledge his rule. But as we've said, you're very well aware of, there is also many of those people in that sphere who don't truly know God. They don't have a genuine relationship with him. They outwardly profess to know him, but inwardly there is no reality to their lives. And so you have in this larger sphere of the kingdom of heaven, there is a smaller circle of people who not only just outwardly profess to know God's rule, to know God's authority, but they have an inward reality. These are those who have a genuine relationship with the Lord. And so together in the kingdom of heaven, we have the true and the false growing side by side. This is true also in each and every period of the kingdom of heaven. There remains these two spheres of people, the true and the false. We see this in the Old Testament, the New Testament, the church age. We see it even in the millennium. You constantly have the true and the false side by side within the kingdom of heaven. And up until this point in chapter 13, there have been both good and evil found within the kingdom of heaven. There are those who are righteous and those who are unrighteous. Now, the parables in this chapter, they come in pairs. For example, the first parable talks about, or the first two parables, talks about the true and the false believers found within the kingdom of heaven. We saw this with the four types of soils. Only one of the four soils produced good fruit. The rest produced nothing of lasting value. Only one was a genuine believer, while the other three showed themselves, ultimately, to have nothing more than just an outward profession. There was no inward reality behind it. The same is true of the wheat and tares. There was a true and false growing side by side. They both look so much like the real thing. They both look like genuine believers. But as we look closer, as we examine both of them, we realize that there are tares growing amongst the wheats. And uh, the next pair that we looked at uh, was parable three and four, the mustard seed and the leaven. This talks about a false gospel that has been permeating through this outer circle, if you will, of the kingdom of heaven. It is, uh, you know, it it starts off this mustard seed, which is the smallest little thing there is. Uh, In Israel, I went there a few months ago, and and it's, it's not very large. It's a small little bush, maybe a shrub at best. Um, and it doesn't grow into a tree, but this mustard seed has grown into a tree where birds are now nesting into it. And you see it, this unnatural, it speaks of a massive growth happening due to corruption, due to evil found within this outer circle of the kingdom of heaven. And finally, we read about um, the leaven. You know, I'm not a great baker, I try, but I'm not amazing compared to some of the women, but I know that when you introduce leaven into bread dough, it expands. The dough rises. It grows. And throughout the Bible, leaven has been regularly used to describe evil doctrine. 
or it speaks of evil behavior. The idea behind this parable of the leaven is that there is corruption that is permeating throughout the kingdom of heaven, resulting in this unnatural, massive growth. <clears throat> and in all in all, these first four parables, though, show us that within the kingdom of heaven, there will be the good and the evil, the righteous and the unrighteous, side by side. And now today, the next two parables we're going to be looking at will be showing us not the outer circle, but the inner circle of the righteous men and women found within the kingdom of heaven, those that genuinely know the Lord Jesus Christ. This, uh, it might sound like a lot, but today we're going to go through another two parables, and, and even though it sounds like a lot, it's only three verses, so there's actually not as much to cover as far as verses, but even in such short verses, it says so much, and I really hope that you'll appreciate the beauty of these verses as I've come to appreciate them as I've studied them, and uh, it really just shows us the love that God had for us and how far he was willing to go and how, and how he valued the people he was pursuing. So I hope that you'll appreciate it as I've come to appreciate it as well. Let's read in Matthew 13, 40, verse 44 through 46. We'll be reading. And it says in Matthew 13, 44 through 46, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure, hidden in a field which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he has found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, before I get into the, the nitty-gritty of explaining this, uh, we should start off by saying that these, these verses, these three verses, are probably some of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. Um, as I was looking through different commentaries, you'd see that probably half of them have a completely other or completely uh, different uh, view of what I'm about to say. And the most common misinterpretation of these passages is that somehow that, you know, we are the seekers of this treasure and that we are the purchasers and that the treasure is, you know, Jesus or salvation or the gospel. And that's typically what you'll see um, on the other end. They think, you know, yes, we go out, we find salvation, we sell everything that we have we, to, to possess it and gain it, and with great joy we have on our face because we know that we're saved. But unfortunately, um, if you look at the rest of Scripture, that doesn't fit very well with what God says. And so I, I don't want to just say that it doesn't fit well with what the Scripture says. I actually want to show it to you so that we avoid any kind of further issues with that uh, before I go on to tell you what it really does mean. And... Um, it's, it's wrong uh, theologically for at least three different reasons. The first reason is uh, Jesus or salvation has never been described as something that's been hidden. And all throughout the Bible, God offers this open invitation. He doesn't hide it from the people. He shows clearly that salvation is for all. Uh, we just read uh, back in Matthew 11, verse 28 through 29, where Jesus gives this grand opportunity for anyone to come to him. He says, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So if, if God was intending for salvation to be something that's hidden, then he's doing a good job at doing the complete opposite because it's something that's been broadcasted. It's been proclaimed from Jesus' day all the way until now that good news has remained the same. It's been told among the world, and uh, I was thinking even, you know, I, I watch football sometimes or other sports, and 
without fail, every game, you'll see someone in the end zone holding a sign, John 3.16. And it just shows you that the gospel is something that's very clearly available to see if you're looking for it or if you're taking notice. And so the first problem with it is that uh, Jesus or salvation is not something that's been hidden. Uh, secondly, and much more seriously, is the interpretation um, uh, with this interpretation is that there is nothing that we could sell or give up in order to find favor with God in any way at all. We cannot purchase salvation by money, even if we gave him every dollar we had. It would never be enough to purchase salvation. We cannot purchase salvation by doing charitable deeds or giving our time at church to serve him. And I'll, I'll just, just to make it clear, I'll repeat it again. We cannot in any way purchase salvation. And that's because God made it so clear that salvation is a free gift. Probably the most clear statement I can show you is in Ephesians 2.8, where it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift, or as some say, the free gift of God. So if we're going around buying salvation, we have problems. And again, Romans, just to make it even more clear, affirms this truth by saying, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in case you have any last doubts, I thought of another one too that God gives in Isaiah 55 where he says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. And so this interpretation that somehow we are the purchasers and we're purchasing salvation or Jesus just falls very short uh, when we compare it with the rest of Scripture. And thirdly, uh, the reason it falls short is because at the end of the parable, it says that the man who found the treasure, it says that he hid it. We don't go, after we've you know, come to Jesus, we don't go around hiding him. In fact, we're called to do the complete opposite. We are called to go out to the nations and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that he has commanded. It's a call to spread the good news to others, to disciple them, to disciple those who come to know him. And so for these three reasons, this idea or notion that we are somehow the purchasers and that the treasure is Jesus or salvation fails to fit with the rest of scripture. So now that we've gone through that exercise, you might ask, well, what is this parable about then? And so before we get into the explanation, I just want you to remember that in each of these parables, they all describe the same idea. They describe the kingdom of heaven. And so the kingdom of heaven has to appear somewhere in the parable as a symbol. The next clue that we can think of is, uh, as we're looking at this, we can look at the rest of scripture and, and think to ourselves, is there anyone that we know of who has given everything they had to purchase someone or something? Is there anyone that we can think of as we look back? And it really shouldn't take us too long because it's Jesus Christ. As we know, Jesus gave himself for us. He died on the cross to pay for our sins. He literally gave everything. And so the man in the first parable and the merchant in the next one represents the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have the man established. Now, who does the field represent? The field represents the world. And we know that to be true because um, it fits with the rest of Scripture. But also, if you look back to the parable of the wheat and the tares, Jesus tells us outright that the field is the world. And so then, who is the treasure? Well, the treasure is true believers, and more specifically, 
true believers in the nation of Israel. Uh, the treasure represents true believing Israel. The treasure is Jewish men and women that would come to know Christ before and after the church age. How can I say that? Well, I, I'll show you through looking at the Old Testament. There are some clear indications that this treasure is indeed Israel. The first clue is that the Bible regularly refers to the land as Israel. And today we're talking about a field which this treasure is found. The next clue is that there are a couple specific verses in the Old Testament where God refers to Israel as a treasure. So I'm going to show you these verses in Psalm 135, verse four and, uh, 3 and 4. It says, Sing praises to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his special treasure. So here we have God describing Israel as a special treasure. That's interesting because that's the same thing that we find within this field, in the parable. And then again, we see in Exodus 19.5, Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. I just, as I was going through this passage, I thought it was very interesting just how God gives us the Old Testament and we can use it today, looking at the Old Testament to kind of uncover the truths of a parable in the New Testament. Um, and so we have here this parable of a man who is Jesus finding treasure, which is all the Jews, um, all the Jewish nation, um, that truly come to know him before and after the church age. And once he has found that treasure, he hides it and then with great joy goes out and sells all that he has to buy that field. So notice that upon finding the treasure, it says that the man representing the Lord hides the treasure. So then if Israel is the treasure, then how did God hide Israel? How are they hidden? Well, they are God's chosen people that are dispersed throughout the world. They are really, in many ways, unknown to anyone except God. We cannot see who is a genuine believer and who isn't. Only God truly knows these things. Only God truly knows those who have placed their faith in him. And currently, we are also living in a time called the church age. And this is a time where God has shifted his focus from Israel, and now his primary focus is the Gentiles. And in a sense, Israel is hidden from view. But again, there will be a time where Christ, when he establishes his kingdom, that Israel will re-enter re this spotlight, if you will, and they will no longer be hidden from view. So in order to do this pastor's justice, I think we need to kind of look ahead to the next parable about the merchant seeking a beautiful pearl. The merchant, as we said earlier, is representing the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, the pearl in this passage is not Israel, but rather it's the church. And we can say it's the church because the Gentiles are all oftentimes associated with the sea. And so in a sense, just as a beautiful pearl would come out of the sea, so the church comes out of the nations of the world. And so both parables speak of two different groups of believers found within this inner circle of the kingdom of heaven, one being all believing Jews during and after the church age, and the other being the church consisting primarily of Gentiles as well as some Jews. And so with that in mind, the parable uh, goes on in the first one to say that God hid the treasure and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And the second parable, likewise, it says, when he had found one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. 
Now, as I look at these parables together, I want you to think, is there anything that you have ever sold everything for? Is there anything that you've ever given all that your possessions to purchase? I think a lot of us uh, have spent maybe a large portion of our money buying a home or a vehicle, um, but literally selling everything, literally giving everything to purchase something, that's, that's a pretty significant thing to do. And as humans, if we're going to give everything up, we would want to make sure that at least what we're getting is worth our while. And more than that, we'd want to make sure that it's probably even worth more than that because of all the trouble we have to go through in doing it. That's us in human terms speaking of daily exchanges that we do. But here we have God selling everything to acquire treasure. And in, and in the other parable, he acquired a pearl. And now when I read this, I wondered to myself, what could God possibly give that would cost him? I mean, if you think about it, all the resources that we consider valuable, like gold or silver or dollars, God spoke into existence during his six short days of creation. God could simply speak money or valuable things into existence, but that really wouldn't cost him. And so what would he have to give in order to say that he gave all to acquire his people? Well, he gave his only begotten son. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to acquire both people spoken about in these parables. First Peter reminds us that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Jesus Christ literally gave everything. He gave the most precious thing of him, his very life for us. He sacrificed his very life to acquire his people. I mean, talk about going and selling all that you have in order to purchase something. And now going back to the first parable about the hidden treasure, it's important for us to note that God did not just buy the treasure. He bought the field. I think... Oftentimes, we need to be just careful when we look at a parable because we don't want to necessarily build doctrine around a parable. But if there is already established principles in the Bible that a parable helps solidify, then I believe it's appropriate to point it out. And the parable here is emphasizing the idea that Jesus did not merely die and pay for the sins of the ones that would come through saving or that would come through coming to know him. He didn't just die for the treasure, he died for the entire world. And this is clearly expressed in John 3.16 where it says, For God so loved the world, which is also represented by this field, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The Lord bought a lot more than just the treasure. He bought the whole field. And though not everyone will accept his offer of salvation, he still paid for their sins in full. Second Peter tells us about false teachers and men and women who will go through their lives, it says, even denying the Lord who bought them. And for those in this world that have rejected this free gift of salvation, it'll be a very sobering moment to stand before the Lord and be judged. Because he is not only the one who created you, but he also purchased your salvation. And even amongst creating you and purchasing your salvation, you still chose to reject him. He owns each and every one of us twice over, first at creation and then at uh, purchasing us on the cross. And yet the world, by and large, does not acknowledge him. They do not acknowledge what he's done for them. And it will be a fearful thing to stand before God realizing that you not only denied your creator, but your savior 
entrance into your life. And so we've been looking piece by piece at these parables. I think it's time for us to just zoom out a little bit and look at what the purpose of the parables is. Because each parable has a unique thing that it points out. The parable in the hidden treasure reveals to us the joy that God had in acquiring his own people and how far he was willing to go to acquire them. The second parable points out the fact that God is the seeker. He sought after us. But I also believe that each of these two parables are complementary in their purposes. They show us the value that God has placed on acquiring his people. But to get a better picture of, of this all, uh, we need to look at what exactly was the treasure like? What exactly was the pearl like before he purchased it? And uh, well, let's look first at what the treasure, what was the state of the treasure? What were they like? And one of the best pictures I could get of that was found in Ezekiel 16, where God tells us exactly what this treasure, Israel, is like. This is the treasure that Jesus purchased by his own blood. So let's just read it, how, what they're like. Ezekiel 16, verse 3, and we're going to look up to verse 7, says, Thus says the Lord God of, to Jerusalem, Your birth and your nativity are from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And so... All that to say is basically Israel was essentially born into a family of wicked and idolatrous people. And yet, God saw the value of this people because it goes on to say, As for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor were you rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you, but you were thrown out into the open field when you yourself were loathed on the day you were born. So in the eyes of the world, Israel was worthless. They had no intrinsic value because no one ever gave them the time of day. No one cared. No one even cared to clean them up after birth. They were left bloody and naked. They were left thrown into an open field where if they were left to their own doing, they would be either starved to death or they would die of hypothermia where they just freeze to death. Or, more likely, a wild animal would probably devour them. And from a worldly point of view, Israel was worthless. No one had compassion on them. Instead, they were loathed from the day they were born. Talk about a sad and poor state. In fact, by throwing Israel out to an open field, everyone else was essentially saying, let them die. They're not worth the time of even nurturing to the point where they'll be able to care for themselves. Let them die. Israel, again, as I said before, is the treasure that God found. That, this is the treasure that God purchased with his own blood. They are the treasure within the field of the parable we're talking about today. Israel, this newborn, squirming in its own blood, unloved, uncared for, they are the treasure that God loved and valued. And I'd like to point out, too, it's not the, the fact that Israel had value in and of themselves but rather they were valuable because God placed that value on them. God looked at Israel and saw that they were priceless to him. And so what does God do? We read on, it says, And when I passed by you, I saw you struggling in your own blood, and I said, In your blood, live. Yes, I said, In your blood, live. I made you thrive like a plant in the field, and you grew, matured, and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed, your hair grew. And he goes on to tell, him, tell us how he washed them properly, how he clothed them, 
how he gave them all sorts of jewelry and accessories, how he gave them food, how he gave them fame among the nations. He makes them beautiful and God blesses them and allows this once squirming, bloodied child to live and to thrive. Instead of allowing them to die, as everyone else thought was fit for them, God gives them the opportunity to live and to grow. And so this passage and this first parable speaks of the value that God has placed on Israel, his treasure. So why does God do this? Was it because they were mighty? Is it because they were great in some way? Is it because they were a large group of people that he wanted to care for? Well, no. In fact, Deuteronomy tells us. Deuteronomy 7, 6-8 tells us why. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the people on the face of the earth. And now we realize why. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than other people, for you were the least of all people, but because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers. You see, Israel wasn't large. They weren't great. They weren't mighty. So why did God select them as his treasure? Why does God rescue this bloodied, helpless child that was thrown into a field? It's because the Lord loves them and because he swore an oath to their fathers. But the idea is that God loved these people, not because they were inherently beautiful outwardly, or even inwardly for that matter, but simply because he loved them. And God demonstrated his love towards them by making them his own people, by redeeming them, by purchasing their salvation on the cross where he died and bled for each and every one of their sins. Israel is a treasure not because of something they have done, but because God placed that value on them when he died for their souls. It's an immeasurable cost that he paid to redeem them. And now, towards us, as as we look at the second parable, realizing that God is the merchant who sold all that he had to purchase this pearl, we said earlier that the pearl is the church consisting of everyone coming to know him after Pentecost until the rapture. These are Gentiles. These are primarily Gentiles, but some Jews also in the church. And so the logical question is, if God sold all that he had to purchase this pearl, the church, then what is the church like? What were they like before they came to know him? And you might be surprised to read the description of what the church was like before coming to know Christ. What each of these members were like before they knew him. And probably the most accurate description I could find was in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, through where it says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. So not a very flattering list, to say the very least. But it goes on, it says, And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. Elsewhere, it tells us that God demonstrated his own love towards us while we were still sinners. Basically, it's saying that we were living for ourselves. We were living for the pleasures of our flesh. We lived in total rebellion towards God. We talked about the lost sheep this morning. We were wandering away from God. We chose to do our own thing. We were lost. We're wretched people, enemies of his, undeserving of any grace to be shown towards us, and yet... God sent his very own son to die on the cross and purchase us. He sent his son so that we would have a personal relationship with him. 
we who are estranged from God far off can now be brought near. And the thing is, like Israel, we had no inherent value to us. If we were left to our own choices, we would have ended up in hell. We would have pursued the passions of our flesh, and we would have been in total rebellion until the day we died. So what would motivate God to do such a thing for people like us? And the only answer I could find is it's his love for us. He chose to love us, and he demonstrated his love by dying on our behalf. You see, the church is so precious and valuable to him because God placed, the value of, God placed that value on it, not because of anything we've done. And what I find even more remarkable is that in redeeming Israel and in redeeming the church, God had tremendous joy in doing so. In fact, we even see us and we even see him tell us this in the first parable where it says, for the joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys. This reminds me of what we talked about this morning, Luke 15, where there are the three parables of the lost coin, the lost sheep, the prodigal son. Each of these parables highlights the joy that God had over a sinner who repents, over a lost soul that trusts in Christ. We read about this same joy in Hebrews where it tells us about Jesus. It says, for who... For by the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In giving his own life for us, it says that Jesus did it joyfully. Not because he was looking forward to a painful death of crucifixion. Not because he wanted to be the shame of what he was about to go through. He looked past all of that. He looked past to the coming glory. He could see a time where all of those redeemed through his sacrifice would be with him forever in heaven. And so we are saved from an eternal punishment of our sins. We are forgiven of our sins, and we can know for certainty where we will spend eternity if we believe upon him. But it goes beyond just that. It goes beyond just simply saving us from hell and bringing us into a relationship with God. When we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, Colossians 1 tells us, that God has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. We, who were once children of wrath, we who were once under the power of darkness and sin, are now brought into a new family. We are brought into the family of God. You see, the goal was not just to save you from your sins, but for you to have a relationship with him. When we trust in Christ, we enter into a new family. Romans 8 tells us, that we are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage against, again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if you're a believer this morning, you are a son or daughter of God. You are no longer under the slavery or bondage of sin any longer. You have been adopted into a new family. Our Father is no longer the devil, but rather it is God himself who is now our new heavenly Father. And being that you are adopted into God's family, you now have a relationship with God. You are his son, you are his daughter, you are a child of God. And as a child of God, it's clear that there, with this new status comes all the privileges and responsibilities that you would expect as a family member of this new uh, family. Verse 17 tells us, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. And 
That's really hard for us to wrap our minds around. But if you're a believer here this morning, you are not only a child of God, but an heir of God. And just as an heir of a family receives the father's estate, so also for the heir of God. All that the father has is ours. While we're on this earth, we haven't yet fully inherited or possess all the inheritance promised to us. But we know that when we are with him in heaven, we will one day. And most inheritance you receive in life from another person could be anywhere from a couple hundred dollars to maybe even millions, depending on how wealthy they are. And a lot of times people get very excited over inheritances and they'll, you know, sometimes fight over it. Sometimes they'll get, um, you know, they'll be just living their life very happy for the next few months, even years. But ultimately, most inheritances get spent over the course of months, days, even weeks maybe at most. And then it's all gone. And people get so excited over a worldly inheritance that can be used up quickly. But how much more excited should we be about an internal, or eternal inheritance? Which will, as it says in 1 Peter, an inheritance that will never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. What this means is that God has made us his children. We have full rights to receive his inheritance. We are his beneficiaries. And not only are we heirs of God, but joint heirs with Christ, meaning that God, that as God's adopted children, we also share in the inheritance of Jesus. What belongs to Jesus will also belong to us. We inherit everything that is his, and now he shares it with you. It's an inheritance that most of us don't ever, or won't ever be able to fully comprehend, probably until we're in heaven. But I just love that he keeps saying one more thing, one more thing. And I like watching infomercials and, you know, you get to the end of a product and they say, just as about, you, about the time you think they're going to turn off the TV, they say, but wait, there's more. And that's what God is saying here. But wait, there's more. Not only have I saved you from hell, not only have I forgiven you of your sins, not only have you been adopted into God's family and now you're his son, not only are you an heir of God and co-heir with Christ, but it says in Revelation 1.6, he has also made us kings and priests to his God and Father. And as kings to God, we tell, uh, it tells us that we will reign with Christ during the millennium. As priests, we offer ourselves our possessions. We offer our lives to him. We offer our praise to him. We tell of his greatness, of how he brought a wretch like you and I into, from darkness into his wonderful light. We tell of how blessed we are beyond our wildest imagination. It's just incredible to think what God has done for us. It's also incredible to think that Jesus had joy in acquiring us. The, the hardest part in studying this passage was that as I was reading this parable, as I was studying and realizing the joy that God had in purchasing tre this treasure and pearl and considering the cost of what he gave for it and how it was everything, how he literally gave himself for that, pre that precious pearl and treasure, and then I take a step back and realize that that treasure was me, or that, that pearl was me. That it was me that he had joy in acquiring. And I think to myself, why would Jesus die for me? Why would he find joy in acquiring me? Why does he love me so much that he would go to such great lengths? Why would he go so far to redeem my soul? And these questions are things I believe we'll think about until the day we die considering why did he do that for me? Why does he love me so? 
And so in light of the great price that he has paid on your behalf to redeem you, what should be our response? And I think the only logical response I can think of is in 1 Corinthians 6.20 where it tells us plainly, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. In light of the great price that he's paid for you, we should glorify God with our body, our spirit, and our lives. Every aspect of our lives should be devoted to him out of the love and gratitude that we have for him saving our souls. And I realize that I am forever indebted to him for what he has done for me. And so in response to that, I should thank him. I should say no to the sins that would bring shame to his name. I should avoid sins that are wrong, like lying, like taking God's name in vain, sexual immorality, placing other things as idols before God, whether it's my career or money or fame or family, whatever it may be. He should have preeminence in all things. I think, just think about it this way. You've been given a body that you use. Are you using it for honorable purposes? Or are you using it for immorality and sin? You've been given a mouth to speak. What comes from it? Are the words used to slander others, gossip, lie, curse, talk poorly about other people, to express anger that you have unrighteously, to show hatred, or is your speech reflective of a changed life? And do you use it to point others to the Savior? You've been given a time allotted here on this earth. What are you doing with the years, the months, the days, the hours, the minutes? Has it been used for the things of this world that will pass away? Or are you using it for eternal purposes? Do your actions and does your speech point to the fact that you've been born again? I'll just say it one more time in closing. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we just look at this passage and realize just, just how, great, how, how great of a length you went for us, Lord. Just how you literally gave everything for us, Lord. We who were vile sinners, Lord, you died for us. You came to this world to purchase us. And you offered a relationship with us, Lord, and now we are offered eternity to spend with you. We are now children of yours. We are now heirs and co-heirs with Christ. We are now kings and priests to our God. It's incredible to think of the, the length you went to redeem us and now the position we have in you, Lord. And Lord, we'll never get tired of telling about your goodness to us, about how far you went for us. And Lord, we pray that in light of all these things, that we would honor you with our lives, with our hours, with our bodies, that we would all do things in order to bring your name honor, to bring your name glory. I pray that, Lord, we would live in light of this remembrance of how great a sacrifice you made to redeem us. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.